0: Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 in a moment, uh, but let's begin with word prayer. Lord, we, we come to you now and we ask that as we open your book that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to take it off the, the page or whatever means we are reading it, uh, digital advice or what have you, that it would be transferred into our lives, into our hearts, our soul, our minds. And am I might change us from the inside out for your glory and honor. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That, by testing, you may discern what the will, of, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Amen. That's where Lord. Amen. Amen. So here's, here's uh, what I want to start out with. Day, you know, and accents. Accents are an interesting thing. I don't mean the the marks in the written page. I'm talking about the way that people speak, and they're very interesting. Depending on what uh, part of the country or what part of the world you live in, uh, you can hear people speak the English language, but it sounds like it's almost an entirely different thing. Years ago, there was a couple from Scotland who fellowship with this the the Kinnears. They were from Scotland here for a time with the oil company, and, and I, I remember <laughs> Uh, trying to talk with them. And their Scottish accent was so strong that almost every time I had any kind of dialogue with them, I would say, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I'm sorry, could you repeat? Now, they were speaking the English language, but to me it sounded foreign. I just had a hard time understanding it. While uh, going to school in Chicago area at Emmaus Bible College, my my family, when we had opportunity during um, spring break or summer break, that kind of thing, would go to Tennessee whenever possible to visit Carol's uh, family. They lived about 40 miles north or so from Nashville. Her parents owned a very small country grocery store and gas station out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was like nowhere. And it was a kind of store that had a, a potbelly stove in it and those that were coming to buy their groceries, they would show up, the farmers, it was really a farming community, they would show up, and before they bought their groceries, or after they bought their groceries, they'd sit around the potbelly store stove and just have conversations. And I remember times when we were visiting, I'd go out to the store, uh, spend time with Carol's dad, who was out there and, and I'd walk in and there could be a, a number of people sitting around the potbelly stove, eating sandwiches that he had made for them, just having uh, you know some dialogue. And, and I remember being so dumbfounded as I listened to what I knew was the English language. Um, but to me it sounded like I could have been listening to Klingon. I mean, it was just, what, what, what? And every now and then someone would say something to me and, and I would you know, shake my head, just hoping that I was shaking it the right way and they, you know, that they, they thought that I was understanding what they were saying when I really was not. So one thing that has perplexed me over time is how people continue to speak with an accent long after they've lived in another area that doesn't have that accent. Uh, even though they you know they moved long ago and, and maybe you 've known people that you 've talked with and they particularly have had a very strong southern accent, and uh, you, you know they come from the south, and so you ask them so where are you from originally, and you know uh, did you just move to Alaska recently and 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 then you find out that they 've lived here for fifteen, twenty years, or whatever and and they just haven't got rid of that accent. They just can't seem to get rid of it. And probably they don't want to. They kind of hold on to it with a little bit of pride, you know. Uh, and it gives them away. It gives them away that they were from someplace else. My kids and I used to laugh when Carol would visit her family in Tennessee or later on in. Mississippi, and she would come back after a couple weeks and she was speaking with an accent. And it sounded so much like her mom or her dad, and it's like we'd just start laughing. And, and uh, or they would say, uh, maybe she hadn't gone on a trip, but they'd say, Mom, have you been talking to, to Grandma recently on the phone? Because she would pick up a little bit of that accent. I, th- I mean, that was her background. She was born in South Carolina and lived, you know, in that area of the world and Georgia and and so on before uh, going to California and then up to Alaska. So it, it would come back to her uh, what she kind of was raised with. So. In studying Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, I began to think of the lives of believers, the lives of believers have having a certain accent, not just the way that they speak, but the, the way that they live. And I began to wonder or think about how our lives will give us away. I considered that even though we may have been Christians by uh, children of God by faith in Christ for some time being those who no longer belong to this world still bear the accent of the world. You know, do we, do we speak like the world? Do we live like the world and look like the world even though we're no longer part of the world? It's not, you know, it's not a shame if someone still bears an accent from the south or somewhere else, you know, the northeast or whatever, long after they've lived in a place that doesn't have that accent. But it is a shame for those who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb and are no longer citizens of this world but are citizens of heaven, to still have the accent of the world, which is under the dominion of Satan and sin. So, the question is, does your accent give you away? Does your accent give you away? And I hope with that question that your interest is at least sparked to see what God has for us in uh, particularly verse 2 this morning. We looked at verse 1 last week. And, and the second verse of Romans 12 is one which calls for those who have believed in Jesus as, as their Savior and recognize Him as Lord to be constantly changing more and more into the people who do not bear the accent of the world, but they bear the accent of their heavenly uh, citizenship. But we'll also see that the changes that must take place cannot be simply a changing of our outward behavior. It's not that, our outward appearance. We must be changing from the inside out and Paul emphasizes that if we're changing in that way, from the inside out, we'll be living out the will of God in the concrete situations in life. Now last week I told you that these two verses, Romans 12:1 and 2, are kind of the, the introduction and the overarching principle that drives the rest of this long section from chapter 12 that goes through chapter 15 and verse 13. The last part of the book is kind of greetings and and, and a number of different things. But this last major section of the book on on application, how we practice God's righteousness, is driven by these two verses. And, And last week we saw that Paul talked about Believers committing their lives to the Lord because they so recognize his worth or his value, not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done for them, that they should present themselves as sacrifices, living, holy, acceptable sacrifices, well-pleasing to God. And and, and that is a rational thing to do in the sense that it not only makes sense, but it is Rational as opposed to religious or ritualistic or automatic. It is, involves the whole being. Here in verse 2, we start out with the thought that God is looking for nonconformist. Nonconformist. Now, Webster's Dictionary has this as one of its definitions for nonconformist. A person who does not conform to a generally accepted pattern of thought or actions. So some of us, probably most of us, grew up in maybe the tail end of what has been termed the age of nonconformity. What age was that? Well, it was the, it was the hippie age. <laughs> it was the hippie movement. and. It was the anti-establishment movement and the women's Live movement and the demonstration era. Now all of this stuff's still going on, but that was a shift in American history and U.S history. Those things in the '60s has changed the way that people live ever since then in the United States. And in some ways, I've always thought of Alaska as being filled with nonconformists. You know, those that have moved away from a, from a place where everyone tried to force them into fitting into the accepted patterns, the way people lived in that area. Uh, people have moved here, they wanted to be free. They, they refused to conform to the pressured norms of, of others. And there's lots of different examples of that. Uh, uh, if you live in other places, at least when I was growing up and for most of my adult life, if you went to an event like a concert or uh, a, a play at a theater or something like that, it, it was kind of a dress-up affair. Yeah. And, and you might go to dinner and you'd dress up and you'd go and uh, enjoy the evening uh, out with your spouse like Carol and I did. And I remember one time Carol and I went to a, a play before the, the, the big pack theater was uh, built. It was at the Sydney Lawrence Theater and we walked in, we were had gone to dinner and we were dressed up and uh, we sat down and, and then we began to notice before the play started that all kinds of people were coming in that certainly weren't dressed up. They were very casual. And then it kind of really stuck out to us when a couple came in and sat down behind it and they looked like they'd just been running a 10K and they were in their jogging clothes and, and all of that, and thought, oh, that. Oh, that's just it, there's just no conformity up here in Alaska. That that's still true today. Well, I'm here to tell you that God is actually looking for nonconformists. That's what this text is telling us. Look at it again. He says at the beginning of verse two, "Do not be conformed to the this world." So what kind of people does God want us to be? Nonconformists. But before actually he, we see what he wants us to be, we must first understand what he wants us not to be, right? Not to be. He wants, actually he, he commands that we uh, are not people who conform to this world. We must be people who do not conform to the world's accepted pattern of thought and behavior. God is looking for nonconformists. And as we consider this statement, I think we have to first take into a couple distinctions between verses 1 and 2 that stand out. Not only between 1 and 2, but also in verse 2. So the first of those distinctions is commitment and transformation or commitment versus transformation if you're filling in your insert. Uh, this, this verse is gonna go on uh, and say that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we'll look further at that, what that means in a little bit but at this point, it's important to notice that this is different. This is the distinction between what we saw last week, the, the distinction between transformation, and commitment. So last week we saw the subject of commitment, that God calls us to live a life of uh, worshipful service because we so value who He is and what He's done for us that we submit our lives to Him and we present our lives to Him as as a sacrifice that is living and holy and acceptable. And, And we saw that the way that Paul wrote that about presenting our our bodies to God as a sacrifice, made it clear that that was a decisive act of the will, a decisive act of the will. It was an aorist, active, infinitive, which is simply putting it this way, it was an event, not an ongoing thing. It was an event, an act of the will, a decisive thing that happened in our lives and that that should therefore change the way that we live transformation that we see in verse 2 is different. It's not a decisive act of the will at a particular point in time, but a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, really, process wherein change is taking place in our lives. And the grammar of verses 1 and 2 makes that very clear. So in verse 1, again, it was a Active, infinite, an event, but in verse two, it's a present active imperative. Both of the, the verbs in verse two are present active imperatives. So that stresses something. We'll talk about that more again in a little bit, but it is distinctly different than the commitment. So the relationship between commitment and transformation then is that the day-by-day process of transformation of our lives is hinged on, or uh, or is based on, I should say, our decisive act of the will, where we present our bodies to God, and say, here we are, you got all of me. You've got all of me. And this is similar, if you will, to people who make a commitment to lose weight and and then day by day they are transformed through changing, let's say through changing the way that they eat. They realize, how did I get to be 50 pounds heavier than what I used to be? I think I need to change that. And so I'm gonna change that. That's a decisive act of the will. But if they don't have a day by day decision where they eat differently they probably are not going to see that change happen. Or you could say it's like a person who commits to getting into shape physically, like a lot of people do in their New Year's resolutions, right? I'm gonna go to the gym and I'm gonna exercise, and and, and sometimes they just don't follow through on that, right? They don't do the day-to-day. They make a decision, I'm gonna get in shape physically, but then they don't follow through with the day-by-day that is necessary for that change to take place. So a person may make a commitment to read the entire Bible. How many of you have ever made that commitment to yourself? I'm gonna read through the entire Bible, at least once in my lifetime. But some of those people have never done that. Every year. Yeah, every year, I know. Just like my wife and I, every year, we read through the entire Bible. Some people make that commitment and then never read through the entire Bible. Why? Because they don't, day by day, read a portion of the Bible. It's not going to happen in one sitting. It it won't. It takes about 72 hours for a moderate reader to read through the entire Bible. Um, So it's not going to happen in one sitting. It takes a day by day. So we have to realize that that is what's going on, we have to see the distinction between transformation and commitment. The second distinction is between transformation and conformity, transformation and conformity. So verse two again says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Now the Greek word for conformed is Su-schematizo, you don't have to write that down, but the middle part of that word, schema, is the word, we get the English word scheme from it. So it is a word that talks about patterns and boundaries and outlines, a scheme. So if you're looking at architectural drawings, there's a scheme laid out on that, and that's part of this word, sous schematizo and it means, The word means to form or mold behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or set of standards. Sounds very much like the Webster's Dictionary definition of conformity, doesn't it? So it speaks of outside pressure that is put on an object so that the object ends up bearing the likeness of that which is putting the pressure on it. it. It speaks of squeezing something into something else to make it the shape that you desire it to be. You could say it's like pouring something jello into a mold so that when it comes out, it looks like the mold, but it's just better than eating the mold, right? That's conformity, outside pressure that puts it on it, whereas the word transform comes from a different Greek word, metamorpho, uh, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. I'm probably familiar with that, the common illustration of that is the butterfly, well, I should say the caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and metamorphosis takes place. It completely breaks down the entire structure and then gets rebuilt as something else, a beautiful creature that comes out of the cocoon and can fly and amazes us with its colors so that's a transfiguration isn't it a metamorphosis and that's the word that he uses here so both of these words obviously refer to change right to change one is changed from the outside pressure and the other is changed from the inside out i think that you know while both words do speak of change paul is very intentional in using two different words that talk about a, a form that is taken, but how that form is brought about is entirely different. For, uh, this is word, words that Paul uses also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where he's talking about Christ and his, his humility in coming to the earth. And, and, and in verses 5 and 6, it says that Jesus was in the form of God, always had been in the form of God. That word is morphe, which is part of the root word for metamorphosis, in the form of God, and then he took on the form, morphe, of a servant. And and what that is saying is that Christ, in very essence, from the inside, if you will, was God, And then he added to his person the very essence of a servant. And then you get to verse 8, where it says that Christ was found in the likeness of men, or in human form, depending on your version that you're reading. That word is schema, the same word that is translated as conformed, in, uh, same root word in, in Romans 12.2. So when used in the same context, then the distinction between those two words appears to be between the mere outward appearance of, uh, of what is conformed as compared to the outward expression of the inward reality or essence. Do you get the difference? One is talking about just the outward appearance. The other is talking about the inner essence that shapes or fashions the outward appearance. Quite a bit different. So Jesus was in very essence God and he took on the very essence or nature of his servant but outwardly he took on the form of a humanity. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh human and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. So an example of the kind of distinction that I'm talking about I'll put it in maybe an illustration of would help us to realize the difference. It could be that I'd say I live in a neighborhood and every house in a single family home house in my neighborhood is blue. But my house is tan. And then everyone in the neighborhood starts putting pressure on me to fit in with the neighborhood. And so, what do I have to do to fit in with the neighborhood? I have to paint my house blue and then I would conform to that pressure, right? I mean, squeezed in, and that would be conformity. But if I I were to paint my home, and then I turned my house into a restaurant, or bed and breakfast, or a chiropractic office or some other business venture, then I've changed it entirely from the inside out. It may still look like a house, but now it's a business, not a house. The essence of it is different. So the scripture says, by the way, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Yeah. And, and, and dis- the word disguises is the same word that is translated conform in in uh, our, our text. And that's in 2 Corinthians 11 and 14 it says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But he can't transform himself into an angel of light. Why? Because his essence is evil and his darkness manifested, right? In contrast, in Matthew 17 and verse two, Jesus, takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain. And it says that he is transfigured before them. That's the same word translated transformed in Romans 12, 2. So he was transformed uh, before them on that mountaintop. And the change that the disciples saw in Jesus for that brief time was not merely a disguise like Satan does. He wasn't disguised. Actually, what the disciples were seeing was a revelation of the inner essence and glory of the Son of God. And then he had to tell them, don't tell anyone about this. They're not ready for that yet, right? So, the distinction then in Romans 12.2 that is that we are not to allow the world to pressure us into its image and likeness, We are not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, so to speak. Rather, we are to be inwardly transformed or transfigured by the renewing of our mind. And the inner inward essence of who we are in Christ is supposed to come from the inside out so that we end up bearing the image and likeness of our Savior. Get the difference? quite a distinction, important to recognize. So Paul describes the the pressure put on believers to take the outward image of the world as an old age problem, an old age problem. Uh, Very funny this morning, Cecilia said to me, I'm just waiting for the time that everyone in the, uh, the room would just move up to the front seats because you know they can't hear or they can't see. And I said, are you talking about because of age? And she said, yeah, we we'll all lose our hearing. And I said, like, well, that's a good thing that we have glasses and we have microphones. So hopefully that won't be a necessity. But I thought, well, that's very fitting to what I wanted to say this morning about the problem that Paul is describing. It's an old age problem, not a problem of being old in age like some of us are but letting the old age squeeze us into its mold. Squeeze us into its mold. So the words translated in this verse where it says, and do not be conformed to this world, are, is literally this age. Do not be conformed to this age. It's not the word cosmos for world. It's the word ionos, age, time. So I don't know that there's a great distinction that would be made between those two terms. And I think almost all of our Bibles translate it as this world. But it is definitely true that what Paul is, is uh, focusing in is a time element. A time element when he says this age. So by faith in Christ, Christians have been introduced and brought into the life of the age to come. We're out of this age, this present age, which is dominated by sin and Satan. We are no longer members of it, no longer citizens of it. Well, we still live in this present age, which is dominated by sin and Satan. And by the way, which is practically passing away on, uh, on a continuous basis, We've already been made partakers of the age that will not pass away. Do you get that? That's beautiful. You might go so far as to say that the only true new age believers are Christians. You know, that phrase that you don't hear as much anymore today, but was real common for a lot of years, new age philosophy, new age cults, that kind of thing. So the spirit of this present age that Paul is talking about is con- and it's constantly pressuring us to conform to its image and likeness, was basically the advancement of self, isn't it? That's this age. What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? Have it your way. You deserve it. It's all that spirit of the age. The spirit of this age is seeking personal happiness and fulfillment at whatever cost anyone else. I mean, it's, it's all about your happiness and fulfillment. The spirit of this age is rivalry and competition, getting ahead of other people. It is accepting anything and everything because all of it's a matter of personal choice and situational ethics and my truth versus your truth. The spirit of this age is the belief that my pleasure and my happiness and my desires are the most important thing in life. The spirit of this age is, to put it in a biblical quote, is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But those who claim Christ as Savior must not allow this age to shape and mold them into its image. It it will squeeze from every side all the time. It will attempt to shape us into its likeness but we are to resist it. We are not to conform to its image, Paul says. One commentator by the name of Leanheart said it, said it well. <laughs> what What madness it is to join this puppet show which is displayed on a tottering stage. He's talking about believers. It's madness for believers to join in a puppet show that's being controlled by Satan and sin. And by the way, that the stage is tottering. It's a, a good wind's going to blow it over. A hard rain's going to destroy it. You know what Jesus talked about? Building your house upon the sand versus building your house upon the rock. The, the Apostle John put it in, in these words in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Or the things of the world, if, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. One age versus another age. So being conformed to this age is giving in to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, which is all about me. It it makes no sense for believers, the children of God, to allow such an age, this present age, to shape us. Why? Because it's not going to be lasting, it's passing away, John wrote. We don't belong to this present age. We live in it, but we don't belong to it. We belong to a new and different age, and we should live like it. That's the point. Do not be conformed to this age. And that brings us to kind of the, the second major point in this, in, in this verse. And I, I put it in, the, in, in your bulletin this way. It sums up what I think Paul's saying. Biblical thinking produces biblical behavior. Biblical thinking produces biblical behavior. So if we are to be successful in our resistance to the age and its attempts to pressure us into its mold, if we are to succeed in being the kind of nonconformist that God commands that we be, we must be transformed, he says, by the renewing of our minds. And it is then and only then that you and I will be able to consistently live out the will of God for our lives. And the phrase that, again, that helps me bring that point into focus is biblical thinking produces biblical behavior. And so what Paul does in the last part of verse 2 is he gives a principle and a process and, and a purpose. Okay, the principle is ongoing transformation, ongoing transformation. So Paul puts it that way when he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this transformation is not one of simply changing our activities, But it goes right to our attitudes, doesn't it? It's not behavioral modification that he is addressing, but rather a complete transfiguration of the way that we think. We should realize this. It's an old phrase, but you've heard it before. New clothes don't make a new person. New clothes don't make a new person. So you can take a poor street girl sewing flowers, on the sidewalk like in the play, the musical My Fair Lady and put new clothes on her and help her to speak without her Cockney accent. Uh, But she's still a poor street girl in her mind and heart. You you can take a pig out of the slop, the mud, and clean it up and put a cute little pig's tuxedo on it, let's say, uh, because people really love to dress up their pets nowadays right (laughs) Right. so you do this with the pig but as soon as the pig gets an opportunity it will be back in the mud rolling around because you know what it's still a pig it's a pig at heart and so that's where it will go so have you ever considered why so many christians seem like they are runners who are dropping out of the race right in the middle of it they're running the race and then they drop out of it Well, the reason that they drop out of it is because they're not being transformed by the renewal of their mind. If you ever wonder why so many professing Christians are so on again, off again in the spiritual walk, you've seen that, right? Maybe you've experienced that. Well, it's because they're not consistently being transformed by the renewing of their minds. So getting engaged emotionally in spiritual things, that's not a bad thing, but if that's all that is driving a person in spiritual activities, their emotions, it will never be enough. And the reason is because sooner or later those emotions are gonna change based on the circumstance of life and they're gonna come crashing down almost like if if they were on a high of drugs and they come crashing down. So you you can change some of your behaviors at some point but the truth is your behaviors will not stay changed unless unless you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation is not t- simply turning over a new leaf, as Pastor Tom mentioned. It rather is like being a newly pa- planted tree with entirely new kind of leaves. It's different. The transformation principle is one, here we go, present, passive imperative and you you might be you know thinking something like there goes spencer again talking about grammar and you would be correct i am and it is very important to understand the grammar of these commands do not be conformed to, to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so what i mean by it's present is that it is stressing the continuing continuing nature of this transformation that is taking place. It's not a one-time thing like commitment, and it's not an on-again, off-again thing. It's an ongoing process. The fact that it's passive means that it is not something that you do to yourself, but something that is being done in you or for you or to you by God. You know, we we don't have the ability to change the way that we think, but the Spirit of God does. We just don't have the ability, but the Spirit of God does. And we don't have have the capacity to transform ourselves, but the Holy Spirit does. He changes us from the inside out. So, you know, in, in, in Greek or English, we have these things, tense, present, past, future, right? And we also have this is called voice it's 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 active it's middle or it's passive active is you do it middle is you do it to or for yourself and passive is you have it done to you but you you surrender to that and that's what this is saying you continuously submit yourself to the Direction, the change that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you. Because he has the ability and you don't. And finally, we have the fact that it's imperative. Which means what? It means it's not optional. This is a command that God gives us, that we are to first resist the pressure of this age, not be conformed to it, and that we then surrender or submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leading day by day and moment by moment so that the transformation of our lives into the image of Christ can take place. Present, passive, imperative. So that's, that is the principle. The process is renewal of the mind, right? Renewal of the mind. So... Paul says that he says do not and be transformed by the renewal many versions have renewing of the mind same thing uh, we must have the way that we think change if we're going to stop giving into the pressure that the world puts on us to conform to its way of thinking its pattern of behavior and by the way this is not the only time this vital truth is taught in the new testament um, Oh, yeah. Peter makes the same connection when calling on the children of God to be holy as their Heavenly Father is holy. He put it this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, preparing your minds. Some of your versions have gird up the loins of your mind. So, gird up the loins, prepare your what? Mind. Minds. That's right. For action. And being so reminded, set Your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Same thing. The mind is involved. It's necessary. Engage the mind and don't be conformed to the world. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He starts at chapter 4 with the principle, live worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And then he starts laying out a whole bunch of points all the way through chapter 6 that relate to that major principle, to live worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And when he gets to 4.17 and following through the end of chapter 4, he's explaining how believers should no longer live like they did before they knew Christ, before they went through the, if you will, the school of Christ. And, and he shows them that the renewing of the mind is the pivotal point that absolutely changes everything. He put it in these words in verses 22 through 24. Put off your old self. right? Put that off. That way of living that was being pressured to conform to the world, put that off. uh, which belongs to your former manner of life and and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's the pivotal point. Be renewed in your mind. And then what follows? The different kind of life. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we are to actually be changed. We can't make that change, but the Holy Spirit can make that change in us. But how is this process going to take place? How is it going to be accomplished? And I, will be, I will tell you this, that the primary way that our thinking is changed is through what do you suppose? The word, the word of God. The Bible. That's right. That's How our our thinking is going to change. How the renewal of our mind is going to happen. So James put it in this truth, in these words, in James 1.21, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And there he's not talking to unbelievers about being redeemed by the blood of lamb. I mean, he's talking to believers. It's very clear if you read the context around it. He's talking to believers about how life can be changed, and that is through the implanted Word of God. So it's the implanting of the Word of God that will deliver us from being conformed to this evil age. David wrote about it in Psalm 119. These verses, some of you have put to memory at some point verses 9 through 11. How can a young man, we could say a young person, keep his or her way pure? By guarding it according to your word. That's right. My, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Colossians 3.16, Paul put it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means with abundance, with comfortable. It's comfortable in your life. You receive it like a rich person lives in his own house. So the word of God is to live in us. So if we're to be changed from the inside out, we and live like Christ, and be, act like we are what we are, participants of the new age, we have to have the word of God implanted in our hearts and minds and souls. And the question is, how's that going to take place, right? <laughs> How are we going to get the, the Bible into our hearts and minds and souls? Well, I'm just going to give you four. You write them down. I'm not going to spend any real time on it. Uh, I mention four ways that it happens. One, Read it. Read it. Read what? The Bible. God's word. You know, Revelation 1.3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, that was talking about the book of Revelation, but that principle holds true for the whole of Scripture. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Made me think of Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God says to the children of Israel, when you get into the, the land, you're going to want a king. And it's okay, you can have a king, but let me give you some stipulations about what the king is to be like. He can't acquire many wives, he can't acquire many horses, and he can't acquire many riches. Which, By the way, you read the Old Testament, they All kind of violated those things. And then he says, and here is what he must do. He must make himself a copy of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He must make a copy of it and read it each day so they might live in accordance with it. Read it each day so they might serve as king as God intended him to. And it also made me think of Nehemiah after the children of Israel came back from the exile. They, they rebuilt, started rebuilding the temple and then Nehemiah came. They rebuilt the wall. And then in, in chapters 8 and 9, there's, there's this gathering together of all the people and they built a, a, a stage and put a podium up. And they had Ezra the scribe come up and they read through the entire law. And they people were just listening to the law and they read and it repeats it several times they read through it they read through it they read through it and they even had people that were explaining it to the people who didn't really understand it read it number 2 meditate on it meditate on it how many of you at one point have memorized Joshua 1:8 man what's wrong with you people You should have that verse memorized. It's a a promise to Israel, but there's application for us. God said to, to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day by day in order that you might keep what is written in it. For then you will be prosperous, and then you will have good success. You have it. Read it. Meditate on it, which means go over it and go over it and go over it and go over it. And then, if you read through Psalm 119, you'll read it over and over again the importance of meditating, particularly in, con- in the context of facing difficulty in life. Number three, memorize it. Memorize it. Psalm 119.11 again says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorize it. Now, I've talked to many Christians about this, and I've had people tell me, well, I just struggle memorizing the Bible. I just struggle memorizing verses. I try, I try, and I just can't remember. And then I usually say to them, do you know where you live? Do you know how to get from here to your house? What street do you live on? What's the numbered address of your home? Do you know your phone number? Do you know your, if I'm speaking to a husband, say, do you know your wife's birthday? You better. <laughs> you know your anniversary? Do you know your kids' names and their birthdays? Do you know how to get to work? <laughs> you know what time you have to get to work? I'm sure you know what time you get off work. What is that? That's memorization. You say, yeah, but that that just took place over time, you know, and it wasn't like one time and I had it down, I had to go over and over it. That's exactly the point. Memorization isn't a, I I read it once, or I memorize it once and then that'll be it, it'll stick with me for the rest of my life. No, you go over it and over it and over again. And over time, if you do that, it will stick with you. Memorize it. And the last thing is study it. Study it. Second Timothy two, fifteen in the ESV says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And the King James says, study to show yourself an approved workman. Study. And whether that word is actually a good translation or not, that's the idea of the verse, is you've got to be so acquainted with the word of God that you know how to use it, when? In the concrete situations of life, in the circumstances that you face. So we, we have the principle, we have the process, and, and now we see the purpose, it's at the very end. And the purpose is knowing and doing the will of God, right? Right? be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might test and approve, or as ESV has it, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So if we're not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the world and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, the result or the purpose of that taking place will be that we will know and do the will of God. And if we're truly being changed from the inside out our daily living, will be daily living in accordance with God's will. Now, that's a whole nother long study in itself, I suppose, you know, people are always like, oh, I want to know what God's will for my life is, and, you know, they're, they're thinking in mystical terms, like, I'm sure God's going to do something special, you know, plane will fly by with marry your husband, or, you know, something like that, or, you know, some special thing, will take. that's mystical, and And God can do whatever he wants, but that's not what Paul's talking about. The will of God that he's talking about is revealed in the rest of this section. 12.3 through 15.13 is an example of the will of God, how you are to live in the concrete situations of life. So it's interesting that the Greek word dokimazo that is translated in the ESV by the phrase, by testing you may discern, is in several versions translated as prove or approve. Like, be transformed in your your minds that you might prove or approve what the will of God is. The NIV may have the best translation. That's hard for me to say, but it is (laughs) test and approve. So all of these All of the ways that this is translated is emphasizing the nature of a testing process where believers are able to determine through examination and evaluation what God's will is in the various situations that they face. That's what he's talking about. And he he says that the will of God is declared to be good and acceptable and perfect. Give this to you. This phrase has oftentimes mistakenly been understood as suggesting that there is a good will of God, a acceptable an acceptable will of God, and then the perfect will of God. Like it's three different things: one, two, and three. Except uh, perfect being one, you know, uh, and so on. That would be the the top. and And they suggest that you know believers should always seek to to find the perfect will of God. Not be satisfied with the the good or the acceptable will of God. That is just wrong. It's so wrong. That's not what this means, either grammatically or practically. The three adjectives that Paul uses, good, acceptable, or well-pleasing, and perfect, describe God's will, what God's will is. So, God's will in the concrete situations of of life is always found in what is morally good. It's morally good. And it is what is well-pleasing to God because it mirrors his own character in the way that he would deal with it. And it's perfect in the sense that it brings believers to a more mature relationship with God and other people. Perfect means mature or complete, not without error. It's perfect, it's complete, uh, is the idea. So let me ask you once again does your accent give you away? In other words, does the accent of your life give you away as being conformed to this present age, wherein your focus in life is on doing all things? necessarily going to benefit yourself? Or does it reveal that you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind with the result that you are constantly living out God's good, well-pleasing, and perfect will? Do, you, do your lips in life bear the accent of one who is pressured and shaped by this age, uh, an age? which is controlled by sin and Satan? Or do they reveal that while living in this present age, you don't belong to it any longer? Instead, your lips in life demonstrate the values and characters of the new age is what is shaping you from the inside out. Maybe as believers it's time that we grow up and start acting our age. Hopefully you got that play on words. (laughs) Start acting like new age believers. That will mean that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out through the word of God. And that we'll begin to think biblically and consequently we'll begin to act biblically. Because biblical thinking produces biblical behavior. Lord, we're thankful for your word, the clarity of it. Help us to live in light of it, to the glory of your name. Thank you, too, for our time of worship in here this morning, and what will continue as we share a meal together. Be glorified there as well. Thank you for all that you do for us, all the blessings that we have in the heavenly places, and all the blessings that you give us in the here and now, and that includes the fellowship and worship and service of one another and your providing for us every day the things that we need to sustain life and godliness. So praise be to your name. It's in Jesus' great name we pray, amen.